0: Three,
1: Mario Alberto Zambrano is the Associate Director of Juilliard Dance. He's performed for Bat Shiva Dance Company, Hubbard Street Dance Chicago, Netherlands Dance Theater 2, and Ballet Frankfurt. Also a novelist, he received a John C. Shups Fellowship for Excellence in Fiction. His first novel, Lutheria, was a Barnaby Noble Discover Great New Writers pick and a finalist for John Gardner Fiction Book Award. He received the alice hoffman prize for fiction the princess grace award a national endowment for the arts and fellowship and other honors previous to juilliard he lectured at harvard he serves as program director for osalina 28's summer program and curates the lit series
0: welcome to the creative process
2: my pleasure thank you for having me mia
0: Oh, it's lovely to connect this way because previously when you were at the Harvard Dance Center, we had a written interview. And so you're a writer, you're a dancer, choreographer, teacher, you wear many hats. But previously we did a written interview and so you had written your reflections on the connection between music and dance. Maybe you could tell us now.
2: Yes, I would love to. I was thinking about sort of returning to what we spoke about during that interview, and I thought it'd be fun to sort of share with the audience one of my responses to one of your lovely questions. And the question being, what does your experience of dance make you appreciate about writing? What has writing made you appreciate about dance and theater? And this was my response. When I started writing, I was, truth be told, relieved that I didn't have to wake up and go to ballet class every day. I enjoyed the long hours at the desk while sipping bottomless cappuccinos at a cafe. And I did that for six years until I missed moving, the mere physicality of dancing. At first, when I was writing, it was all a wonderfully realized ballet that was happening inside of my head. And I was bringing all of the sensibilities I'd acquired as a dancer into my writing. It felt so similar to making a ballet, to choreography. The language was the Ass, and I could make the cast dance however I like. Writing and dancing offer such wonderfully different experiences. One is entirely cerebral, while the other is sensual and in constant motion. If we break down the elements of style, technique, and craft, structure, and voice in both art forms, they are related by a current of motivation and sensibility. Each needs those two things, the grammar of the body and the grace of style. They're interchangeable. The common denominator is the meter, the pace, the music each of them need in order to move forward, and I love that. The music they share. You can read a book by Virginia Woolf and you're listening to a musical composition. You can watch Rudolf Nureyev dance and you're singing a song.
0: I think that that's so beautiful and it really makes us reflect on the different ways that we think, communicate and see the world. And I love that phrase, the grammar of dance, because some people haven't quite come to accept that it is an actual language with a grammar. So it's interesting because I was just doing an interview with a sculptor who lost one of his fingers and thumb. There's these huge sculptures and he was talking about thinking with his body. Some people think they think with their head. I feel like dancers almost think with their body and the head kept out so for you would you say your primary language and just help us understand that way of thinking the body
2: so many layers to that question to unpack. There's the personal experience I've had as a dancer and sort of transitioning into a writer and then sort of the objective point of view that I have on learning the field of dance and learning the field of literature and writing. I started dancing when I was very young. I started dancing with my mother at weddings. She loves to dance and my father would only last about two songs. So after they were done, she would go grab me and I would dance and I was a very shy kid, but somehow when my body began to move the music. I was very much rooted in a kind of physicality and intelligence to the music and to my body. When I began dancing, I started in jazz and ballet and modern. Again, when I was 11, I acquired an intelligence that came to me very luckily quickly. And so by the time I was 16, I I was offered a full contract into my first professional company. I had a career and I learned so many different languages and I worked with different choreographers. And then around 25 I quit dancing. I retired early and I returned to school and I found this wonderful world of literature. So I'd always loved reading novels, but to create and to write a short story, a fiction or a novel, I found to be so difficult. And there was a different part of my brain that took a lot longer to understand how to acquire the skills of crafting a short story or crafting a novel. And I would always tell myself that in some respect, dancing loved me more, or does love me more than literature does, because there was a sub- sort of quickness and sort of out sounding pompous a kind of brilliance in understanding how dance worked that my body understood, whereas with literature, and it's very specific English literature and, and the grammatical elements of style and, and composing a sentence correctly, word usage point of view, my effort was put to the test. I had to apply much more time and I had to be more patient with understanding how things were put together. After I was studying, I got a master's in English literature and creative writing. I came back to dancing and I began to tell a lot of my students at the physical intelligence that at sometimes in your development as a dancer, if you're training professionally or to be a professional dancer, you have to trust the body in a way that it has a voice of its own. And so you have to have a relationship relationship with your body, that you are listening to its intelligence and its coordination and its impulse for rhythmic and responses to the musicality of whatever music you're listening to, along with the application of technique and style of whatever movement language you're learning. And when I started writing more seriously, especially in grad school, a lot of my writer friends who learned that I was a professional dancer, they would get very excited. They think it was such a glamorous background, they would ask, oh, you were a dancer do you write about dance I thought no absolutely not there in my brain I had experienced them as two different sort of countries divisions of experience both that I loved in different ways but that I had a different relationship with each and now that I've been practicing both simultaneously I realize that there is that kind of beautiful musical as, as I mentioned in the response to the question from our interview from a few years ago of pacing of learning how to stop, learning how to shape a movement in the same way you shape a sentence. It's beginning, it's middle, end. when you're thinking about classical ballet and you do tombe pas de bourree, there's so many things going on. The legs are turned out. You're stepping. The second step is behind the first step, depending on which direction, if on fossa or um, going backwards. And then the arms, the port de bras of the arms, the right arm and then the left arm in coordination with the legs. There's so many technical components that are happening all at the same time. So as a dancer, you have to multitask. You have to sort of find a way to bring all of these things together so that a simple movement that lasts less than a second, or if anything, one second. There's the technical demand, but then there's the rhythm, the cadence of the movement in the same way there are beats within a sentence. And I think there's something deeply rooted in our human experience ever since we were born. The minute we feel a heartbeat, you know, for a woman who's expecting, that channels a kind of intuitive intelligence that we have to listen to while we're acquiring the scale of grammar, both in movement language and in creative writing or in literature
0: yeah I think they're very connected and then depending on one's approach to prose or I think that poetry may be kind of like a bridging medium like it has the sense of breath and music a little bit more a lot of us think of ourselves as being logical creatures but so much is on this tonal unconscious non-verbal level and almost sometimes the words themselves aren't always important but it's that rhythmical thing and that the music comes in
2: absolutely and talking about Rhythm. a great literary icon just passed away two months ago, Joan Didion, and she was a master of style. She was a master at pacing. She was a master at saying just enough and not too much, but trusting the rhythm of the sentence for it to land most efficiently in the essay or fiction that she was writing. When thinking about poetry, it can be very vast in terms of how creative and experimental you're gonna be. And one of the components of how poetry is put together, or fiction, is put together is its form, is its structure. And I am so enamored with novels that break the uh, the convention of form, of writing stories linearly in in a straight line, whether it be jumping to different pockets in time over a span of 100 years or covering, like Virginia Woolf's Orlando, a character who lives for more than 300 years. But not for the sake of invention and being different, but for the purpose of trying to make a statement or pose a question of how this new structure is aligned with this sort of internal beat of a character's desire or effort of what they're trying to accomplish, or the author's effort in trying to demonstrate a certain point of view. What I have noticed now that I'm working both in writing and in dancing again simultaneously that I think is really interesting, whereas before I always posed that They were two completely different experiences. The more I live and the more I practice both, they are sort of coming together and they're more similar than I I realized before. Where I really, really, am fascinated is that many writers begin an essay or a fiction differently. You can either outline the plot points and how many characters and where the setting's going to be and draw out a family tree of cast of characters all before you begin the first line. And then once you understand how the structure is going to work, you can sit down and write. I don't write that way. I love to sort of just wake up and let the pen take me wherever it wants to go, which is along with my intuition, along with my interest my poetic sensibilities, my interest in in structure or invention or drama. And I always feel that that process, getting your thoughts down, all of your thoughts down, even if they're jumbled, even if they're a mess, even if they don't make sense, but they will make sense to you later. And that is an interesting shift in the process. When you return to the, say, that first draft of long, long pages, it could be maybe even 100 pages. And you've heard this from novelists before. I didn't know what book I was writing until I was 150 pages in to the manuscript that I was working on. And then they ditch the 150 pages and they begin with that character or that scene or that interaction between characters that really feels to them as the nugget of truth that they really want to circle around and build a novel around. That process of how do I take 150 pages or how do I take this nugget and build out of it is the application of craft. The application of point of view. Where am I going to be telling this story? The application of voice. What's the voice of the narrator? Is the characters telling the story or is it an omniscient character? And even when an omniscient character, what is the tone of the narrator to the consciousness of the piece? There's so many craft elements that are involved. And what I'm recognizing now that I'm working at the Juilliard School and I have the most incredible students, the most talented dancers, artists in the field, and they're really are the future of the field as many dancers all over the world. They love to improvise. It's become such a daily practice for many of them. And I did also improvise in studios and at home in the living room when I was younger, but it was never part of a curriculum. There was never a class on improvisation. There was never interludes in a ballet class where I was offered modalities to which I could improvise off of. And what I see and you can scroll through Instagram and just tag dance search or improvisation. And you'll see tons of dancers uploading their improvisations. And where I find that being so inspiring is that in both writing a first draft and in the improvisation of a dancing body, what is so key and and relevant and exposed is that internal voice of the artist, of what they're writing on the page or what they're writing in space. And if you go to a fiction workshop, you talk about plot and you talk about structure and you talk about character development. But there are very few classes within a dance curriculum where you break down an improvisation and you talk about voice and you talk about point of view and you talk about metaphor or musical composition within in a phrase the lifespan of a phrase and so this realization is helping me understand that one minute post of improvisation or even a 10 minute span of improvisation if it's recorded is very similar to a first draft of creative writing where then the artist is in a position to evaluate those 10 minutes and identify what is the setting what is the voice that has come out of my experience of writing this first draft of monetization and how can i give it structure how can i give it form and this is where i find choreography and creative writing very similar
0: Yes, I I love improvisation. I dance every day, but it's like more to free my mind. And it's a strange thing because I didn't even record it, but I just enjoy it for the joy of it to get out of this cerebral world. And I agree, it's like the first draft, but sometimes the subsequent drafts is so logically thought out. It's like following what you think you're supposed to be doing. Like a lot of people, then they talk about books, like, oh, I was writing this book that I thought was going to write a great American novel. And then somebody said, oh, but I really just love your short stories. When you think you're just messing around and you didn't even think it would be published. It wasn't the great American novel, but it actually was you. And that's the thing that can get lost in trying to be literature with a big L or something. It's like the freedom and the playfulness that you see in children or in, in animals that are so graceful, but like they never took a dance class in their life, but gosh, they just have it. So I love the freshness and I think that it's really important. And I was actually speaking with Jill Johnson and one of your colleagues there from Harvard and she was talking about, yeah, it's if, it's absolutely improvisation is the first step.
2: I, I have uh, a few things to say to that response because first of all, I love that you dance every day. I think that's wonderful. I think we should all dance in some respect because we're then practicing and engaging with relationship with ourselves because that's so human and connects with the deep intelligence of what the body is trying to tell us. What reminds me of how you describe dancing as a way to escape yourself in order to be with yourself, there is a movement language called Gaga that Ohad Naharin created. I was a dancer with Batsheva Dance Company many years ago, and at the time we were taking his class. And it was not called or it was not codified as Gaga quite yet. It was his class. And over the last 10 years, Gaga has become a movement language. And especially over the last two years, a language that is offered online. And first of all, it's without a mirror. So there is no judgment to any dancer taking the class and it's continuous for an hour, but it is rooted in waiting for the body to tell you what to do before you tell it what to do. And there's a focus in engaging with the sensorial sort of discovery of how your body feels how you feel the lightness of your arms as you engage with the sense of floating not just in your arms but also your shoulder separating away from your rib cage that's usually how the class begins getting in touch with yourself which is also some have said quite meditative because one has to sort of remove the cobwebs of the daily daily life and the anxieties of all the things on the to-do list and connect with breath and connect with sensation and connect with the joy to dance which is something universal throughout all of time and across the entire universe as we know it on this planet and in it is this sense of play this sense of trust and creativity that is so evident and we witness all the time in children when you go to a playground there is no question oh if i do this i'm going to look silly and then you know that pre-judgment that if i do this someone else will think this way of there's just absolute liberation to run gleefully whenever they want to, or to cry when they don't get on the swing or don't get on the, their emotions are transparent and they're basically open books, but there's a beautiful sense of humanity in that. And I think when that sense of play coexists with a sense of craft, intelligence of how to shape any kind of language, whether it be musical composition, whether it be fiction, whether it be a dance language, either codified and traditional or being invented as an innovator and pioneer in the field. The rules and regulations with which you can find freedom within. That's very much how I like to think of technique rather than a limitation, a clarity of rules and regulations within which you can find freedom. My very first book, when you had mentioned the idea of like, oh, building on a big novel and I'm going to write the big American novel. I tried to do that as for my second book and it failed terribly. Why? Because of this same reason. When I was in this transition between a dancer and to be honest, it wasn't so clear after I retired when I was 25 that I wanted to be a writer. When I started dancing when I was 11, I thought I was going to dance until I was 45 until now. I'm 45 now. And it was a very demanding career and I, I needed a break. And when I was 25, the question, what are you? besides a dancer, I could not answer that. And so it took a lot of time to get to a place that I could find something that I was in love with again. And luckily I was able to find literature. I took a job because I was then 30 years old and I wanted to go to school as a United States citizen. I wanted to go to school in the United States. I thought, oh, writers, where are writers? New York. I want to go to New York. I'm going to go to New York. I'm going to have a literary circle of friends. So that was the plan. Had no idea. That was what came to mind. But then I looked at tuition and I'm 30 years old at this time. And I I thought, this is insane, it's obscene, the tuition costs in the United States. So I took a job in Japan, in Osaka, and I performed Wicked, the musical, because it paid well and I could save money to go to school. And while I was there, the practice in writing fiction was so new to me, I would sit down at the desk and I would think, how do I begin? Writing a journal, writing about your life, I was in the practice of, but to write, to invent a story, I have no idea, what do I do? As a Mexican-American, I always played, growing up with my family called Loteria, which is like a Mexican bingo game. It is a Mexican bingo game, but instead of numbers, there's all these images and 54 cards. And I've always held the deck of cards with me, wherever I go. I always have a deck of cards, I've always loved them. And so I would shuffle the deck and I don't know anything about tarot readings, but I imagine myself a tarot card reader and I would flip over the first card and that was my protagonist, whatever it might be. And the images vary from an umbrella to a rooster, to a sun, to a moon. So I'd flip over the card and whatever the first card was protagonist whatever the second card was my antagonist and then I would flip over a third card and somehow I would have to include that image whether it be uh, a spider or a, a frog there's a there's an image there's a frog I would have to include that in that story so I started playing with the invention of storytelling with this framework and without even knowing I was giving myself rules and regulations within which I could find freedom and after Japan I came to New York I got an undergraduate degree at the new school focusing in on writing fiction. And I began to write a story or a novel kind of using the structure of the deck of cards. I applied to grad school with half of that manuscript. I got into the Iowa Writers Workshop and I continued. And it was never intended to be the great American novel. And it was never intended to be a novel in itself at all. There were always these small exercises for myself to sort of feel that freedom as a child does in a playground. Go down the slide however many times I wanted. I could fall, I could cry, I could laugh, I could sit down, I could do whatever I wanted. And as a result, it it turned out to be this sort of emblem or pocket or glimmer of truth that an agent identified and said, I want to represent your novel. And those are those two things gaga, that kind of inherent embodied intelligence of waiting for the body to tell you what to do before you tell the body what to do. And that sense of play in writing fiction, in interpreting and transcribing your imagination on the page,
0: but it's great the Loteria images are also a great visual there's so much in this linguistic world it's great to have that and they're fantastic and it gives a wonderful structure and energy you kind of trick yourself you're playing a game but incidentally you're writing stories and novels and so I firmly believe we should have fun doing what is our art the struggle happens but it's fun and the joy is communicated to people and I was just wondering there's the visual physical aspect of dance and then there's the music there's the staging. There's all these visual things, the costume, all these things that come into play. What makes someone a special performer? I sometimes feel like it's these little things we don't even, like sometimes the way one might even dance with one's face. You see the same performance, the same role, but what's that thing that makes it memorable? It's this kind of small thing. What are some of those invisible things that go into making a performance or performances that you really remember?
2: Okay, I'm going to answer this from a personal place, but before I get to my personal response, I will say, similar to what I, I said earlier about how writers approach the project of writing a short story or writing a novel. There are those who plan out how many chapters, who how many characters are in the first chapter, what's going to happen in the seventh chapter, before they even write the first sentence. And that's fine. And that to me, if I were to be applied to an actor or to a dancer, is a very well-rehearsed artist that has done the work over and over again. And when they step on stage, when there's that moment where they're going to share their work, whether someone's going to read the work, someone's going to view the play or view the choreography, they're going to do it exactly the same because they have that kind of confidence and they have that kind of security in being prepared to do what they have trained so hard to That is a pocket of a kind of artist, and I have witnessed this kind of artist, and they're wonderful. They're absolutely exquisite. And especially if they are inserted or part of a choreography, that the choreography itself is a wonderful choreography. As something is well-being crafted and has good pacing, voice, so on and so forth. There is also the kind of artist, kind of actor, kind of dancer and musician that rehearses the language that they are going to perform. And it is in their body and they've trained it and they've done it repetitively over and over and over and over and over again. But the moment they get on stage, they leave a space in their interpretation that is of the moment, that is singular to how they feel and the energy they have and how far they want to shoot or extend their artistry. I've seen that in dancers. And to me, this is my personal response. I find that electrifying because what is so beautiful about dance, especially live performance of dance, is that it's ephemeral. It only exists in the memory of those who saw it at the time that it was performed. To say you, you see a performance dance one night and you love it so much, or you love a particular dancer so much of the nuances, of the suspensions, of the focus, if they play with focus, and you return again the following evening because you loved it so much the night before and you find that it might be you might get the same reaction or you might not have the same reaction at all because they are again being true to themselves in the moment of that performance in the way that if you were to go to a playground and watch children play and it in light brought a sense of joy that you return to the playground the following day you're not going to witness the exact same thing you're going to witness new decision making new ideas of creativity new collaborations between between the, the, the children or adults, depending on who's in the playground. And I think that's fascinating. I was watching an interview. One of my favorite novels was The Hours by Michael Cunningham, and it was turned into a film. It was Nicole Kidman and Julianne Moore and Tony Collette, I believe, and there are others. But in particular, there was an interview with Nicole Kidman. And here was an example, and I don't mean to make a comment about all of Nicole Kidman's work, but for this particular movie, she was very well rehearsed. That Even the taps on the lips and where her eyes would shift to whatever was in the room. It was identical every single time and she got the Academy Award for it. Julianne Moore on the other hand was someone who in that responding to that same question how do you prepare had mentioned I know the script I have the script in my mind but I don't over rehearse because when I get to the scene I want to have an experience so I'm not going to do the same thing every time and so my personal sort of attraction to artists whether they're musicians actors or dancers is that kind of sense of them experiencing the work for the first time the way I I'm experiencing it for the first time.
0: Yes, I think that art can really have that basis of craft and the foundation, but art can really take us by surprise when the artists themselves are experiencing it because they're alive in the moment. And, and I think going back to your time in Japan, I think there's also this thing about the, the, the flaw. So the flaw, the golden flaw with Kintsugi, I think you call it, that can run through things and that can make it even more special. And I think of singers, that I think everyone admires Maria Kallis. I think about her voice, as we experience it in recordings and there's this tremulous emotion the motion the craft but the emotion it could almost destabilize it could almost lose it but then we hold our breath and we want to see her go through and I think that that's something that the great performers do
2: yes I agree and responding we're mentioning something about imperfection know I have again returning to the students I have at the Juilliard school they're so committed and they have a kind of urgency to jump into the field as professionals also when I was working at Harvard in different disciplines there is this idea in our culture to be perfect you know if we think about social media and these influencers version of a life that is perfect that is immaculate which is also a biased response to our sort of how we were brought up up and thinking what is perfect, what is the perfect Hairdo, what is the perfect lifestyle? What is the perfect vacation? What is the perfect cappuccino? It's all dependent on the response of how much popularity you're getting, which is kind of bogus. It is bogus. And there is this beautiful truth to exquisite things that have imperfection, whether they be in performance, whether they be in creative making. And I think we begin as children, all of us playing or being imaginative and not having any limits on that and then dedicating ourselves to a certain craft or a certain technique and then finding sometimes that relationship with that dedication can be hurtful because we can never reach that state of perfection. And that can make us feel undervalued or make us insecure. But all of that intelligence, all of that work and learning the craft is still in us, in our embodied memory, in our conscious memory, or subconscious memory. And then to return as we get older at some pocket in your trajectory of taking all of that knowledge and that experience, all of those books that you've read, all of those choreographies that you've seen and dancers that you've seen, and then jumping into the playground and playing again. There is that beautiful sophistication, intelligence coexisting with imperfection and it being absolutely wonderful and true. I think when art, in whichever discipline, kind of offers that glimmer of truth, truth being things that are imperfect but at the same time exquisite with their intelligence, the clouds part and we're happy and we're inspired because there's that touch of art.
0: Speaking about playing again, imagine what it's like for the community of dancers but through COVID and shutdowns, there's been a choreography of COVID. I live in Paris, you live in New York, cities have a choreography. And then when you see COVID settling on it, everyone has this different, it's the heads down choreography. That experience must be frustrating for you and your community. I know that you had Juilliard thrive and you had different (laughs) initiatives, but how did you make it through and are still making it through? Because we're not entirely out of it yet.
2: We're not. And it's a very monumental moment right now for me because, especially this week and next week, we're hitting on a two year anniversary of the global lockdown that we all went through. I started my position at the Juilliard School in January 2020. And two months, two and a half months later, when I arrived, I kept calling it, wow, this is a big ship. The division there is a very big ship. There's over 90 students, there's faculty of over 30, we have staff. So it was a big responsibility responsibility. That was new to me. And so I kept on saying as a joke, oh, this is a big ship. This is a big ship. And then two and a half months later, the ship hit an iceberg. And we are not in the clear, as you just mentioned. But we just conducted auditions for next year last week. And two years ago, at the same pocket in time, I remember the Museum de Louvre in Paris had shut down. It was one of the first things to close. And I had a flight, I was going to go visit some friends in Holland, and I canceled the ticket. And I remember coming in right before the audition, began and telling the faculty committee of the audition committee saying, oh, I can't supply ticket. I don't know what's going on. There's a pandemic going on in the world. The following week, which is either this week or next week, we were in lockdown. And so we were all at home. Everyone went through the unexpected challenge of how are we going to get through this? How are we going to continue doing what we were doing before with this limitation? And so here we are, a limitation. How can I find freedom within the limitation? Yes, we got through. We did all that we could. We did online classes. We met with the students a lot one-on-one throughout the entire year consecutive year i think apart from the choreographic sort of happenstance of it all and genius i think the first time we had a full division meeting with zoom i was never one to enjoy facetime even before the pandemic so i just don't like to see myself when i'm talking the first time we did a zoom meeting which no one had up until that point used Zoom as far as in my circle of friends. Everyone's face on the screen in these tiny little boxes all over the country. And as you mentioned, you're in Paris, I'm in New York. Technologically, that was so fascinating to me. How is the world existing? How is this happening? It was just so mind-blowing to me. So that push onto online and digital living just was the only option. And so we began to build a world in which this new digital life was a way for us to find freedom and connection. However, there has been a psychological embodied trauma as a society and as individuals that I don't think, because we have not fully gotten past this pandemic, we have had time to process and reflect on. I mention that because the last two years, that has been the hardest. Thing. Yes, we've been creative and we slowly were bringing in students and we taught on Zoom with a big screen in front of the studio and there were only four students and we marked out the studio space with tape on the floor in four quadrants. When the vaccine was brought out, slowly that changed the, the protocols and the limitations or the, the sense of building capacity or increasing capacity. So it was all very slow steps, but What has been very difficult and still is a lot of work to undo and unpack and focus on is the trauma, the psychological trauma of it all. Because at the end of the day, though I can speak to you, I'm not in the same room with you. There's a sensory of your energy that I can pick up with expression and I can pick up with the tonation of your voice and the cadence of your voice, but also there's a lot missing.
0: Yeah, definitely. I had usually not always a chance to do interviews in And it just became like, even if it's in the same city, we would do it on Zoom. So it's interesting the different ways that it is also isolating within one's like class or within one's little safe bubble, because you had to be safe. I think that in terms of very social cities like New York and Paris, where even just to go to work, you would probably take normally subway, public transport. Maybe other cities were more isolated. The housing is set further apart. They're already like, say, in Los Angeles, everyone's driving around in little bubbles anyway. So it's not as much of a difference, but for our experience of our cities, it really changed a lot just for safety reasons.
2: Yes, absolutely. When the pandemic hit, the first thing that I wanted to do was obviously go home to my parents and meet them and make sure they were okay. They live in Houston, Texas, which is this city that's very vast and it's called highway culture, car culture, and a place where you have to get in the car and go to the grocery store to get some milk. But in that environment, most houses and subdivisions in suburbia are already protected by a kind of lot space where they can go outside. Even in lockdown, they were able to go outside, be in the garden, and feel comfortable even though there was this sort of global pandemic that was hanging over them and everyone. Whereas here, something that still is very difficult for me to sort of grapple with is last year, the first years coming in, in September for the fall semester, and some of them were Canadian. And in the United States, so many states had different protocols and mandates and requirements, especially if you're traveling from state to state. So all first years came into New York and they had to stay in their dorms for 14 days. They had a quarantine for 14 days. And I think of that experience as a first year coming into your college experience, going straight from the airport to a dorm, which is not a home to you yet. It's a small room that will become your home and having to stay there for 14 days without being able to leave. And that kind of isolation with a window that looked out into a vast city that is New York City, but without being able to engage with it, without being able to walk or go to Central Park or get on the subway was very, very difficult, I think, for me to grapple with. And when we did finally have the chance to start going out, the experience on the subway was with so much caution. I don't think there was anyone who was quick to stand shoulder to shoulder. It was actually the opposite. There was so much fear and caution. And this is what I mean about that psychological trauma that is our society that's embedded that we did experience that we don't want to return to because it was a difficult experience. But that was lived. It was an experience we went through. I remember the first time I went to the Juilliard School after being isolated and getting on the subway with two masks on and getting side eye from other passengers of don't come too close. We were all kind of walking through the city in public areas in that kind of way. Now it's it's so different. They just passed it. The New York mayor just passed. He dropped the mandate. There's no mask mandate for any restaurant or for any sort of grocery store. I think the Theatres still need a mask and public transportation, like a subway, you still need a mask. But I remember going back to when I did finally get to go visit my parents, I told them immediately, "It was like, oh, this was a different experience for you. To look down Broadway or to be in New York City and not be able to engage with a a normalized condition of interacting with other strangers because they're traveling from here to there. That is not something you experience because you were either at home or you were in that bubble of a car vehicle going from here to there. And you saw other people, but there was so much more distance between you. Whereas in Paris or in New York or in London, it's necessary to interact with other strangers in order to live your life. And in those kind of cities, it was, I think, a more obvious and and transparent affliction of what was going on
0: yeah and it just takes away what's special about these cities where we are packed in close to to each other is that ability to mingle and and get ideas and inspiration and then you just had to experience everyone with distress it makes you ask what you value most understand what you appreciate about the arts or about teaching and family so what were some of your reflections during that time
2: Some of my reflections, I think, during this time, I'm just going to speak openly to say that because of the last two years, there's been a directive to be more mindful, to have more self-care, have a practice in self-care, which I think is important, and we've begun to see that more and more. We have a class at Juilliard that is self-care for professionals, particularly for that reason. There's always an onslaught of information coming from news outlets on social media, online, on television, and there's an atrocity going on right now in Ukraine, to take that on, I always question how much we can carry before we break, how much information can we continue to swallow before we pass out. And I think this idea of being self practicing self care and being mindful for yourself is very important. But it also requires us to block out some time for it, because otherwise, the information of the world is going to come in. In doing so, I'm someone of the mind to feel blessed and grateful for for what you have and think of those who don't have nearly as much as what you have. And I'm very grateful that I have an apartment. I'm very grateful that I can feed myself. I'm very grateful that I can have a wonderful group of colleagues that I work with. And that I get to see young adult individuals where artists express themselves on a daily basis. That is a gift. I think that is a wonderful gift. And that I have my health and that I have my imagination and my mind. We take uh, for granted the ability to have the mental faculties to organize and to plan a day and to be mindful and to meditate and to be creative and to listen to music and to be inspired and to call a friend and to have a conversation all of these things are so valuable in our sense of feeling alive and I think all of those pockets or anything that helps me feel like I'm participating in a creative act and I say that now thinking during this entire pandemic I've been cooking more and I love cooking which I find a creative act I'm grateful for I think of those who the day habits that I very easily can take for granted don't have that option right now because you're either carrying all of their luggage across desert trying to get to another country where they hope to have a better life or they're being evacuated or they're refugees and that humbles me in thinking that I am very lucky and I think that's a daily affirmation that I have to tell myself that I am a lucky person.
1: Oh,
0: yes. Well, you've made your luck through hard work and your talents, but I think that we're lucky, those of us who work in the arts or also in teaching, because it's something not an abstract. It's really what everyone remembers their humanities courses, whatever they take in their career, whatever, but it helps center us. It's what we are. We're storytellers. We are artists. You look at a child and we we are that from the beginning. So tell me for the Lit series, is that came about during the pandemic?
2: it did so the lit series was an idea that i had to very frankly offer some of my artist friends some stability and financial resources and i've always enjoyed and been attracted and been inspired by interdisciplinary thinking i was actually thinking of a project idea for a book with seven lectures on interdisciplinary thinking on choreographic thinking and i was going to ask musicians of different disciplines to write an essay on how they sort of collaborate with other mediums and when the pandemic hit, especially in April, Broadway shut down. So many people that were dependent on tours to go perform, that was canceled. People who have dependency on teaching in person, that was shut down. A lot of artists really were hurt by that restriction. And they still had to pay rent, and they still had to feed themselves, and they still had bills. And so that really was at the root of what gave my idea some fire to really make it happen. And so the Lit Series, the Library of Interdisciplinary Thinking, was something that I had access to to create. I had a computer, I had Wi-Fi, I have social media components. So I organized a web page and this idea to create masterclasses online and invite artists that I knew, that I believe in, that I respect to offer information on how they're working in two mediums in whatever work they were doing. And that's how that began. I started with Cindy Salgado, who who gave a beautiful presentation on social justice, dance and social justice, and how to work and collaborate with other people kind of rooted in humanity. I worked with Luis Alberto Rodriguez, who used to be a dancer and is now a fashion photographer photographer and also an art photographer is doing wonderfully well. And I also worked with Peter Chu and Roger Vanderpool, both dancers, and rep Peter is a choreographer and how they're again working with artists in the room, which is a shift in our tradition of thinking about dancers as sort of units that do someone's work, but the creative space is more democratic now in that everyone is present to voice who they are in part of the creative process that is a choreography. And that's what Peter and Roger speak to.
0: Yes, I've enjoyed those masterclasses in the Lit series. And of course, look forward to more and even sh- sharing your work with some of our students who may not come from dance, although some do, and inviting their contributions, interpretations of what you shared. I think that they're very interesting and it's always interesting to see how genre or art form inspires another. In your own choreography, in your own dancing, I think that a lot, maybe traditionally dance had come out of music, but if that's not always the case. Some people have told me that it comes out of a visual sense or a certain staging. What tends to be, it's not the Loteria cards, but what tends to be that for you?
2: In that idea of being presented a game, you find a board game, like, what is this board game? You go to a dinner party and they say, let's play this board game. Like, what is this board game? You learn the rules, there are colors. You choose your favorite color. You already have it in if it's sort of organized by color and you're like, I love red. You're red, you're already finding your way in. And so it's a matter of finding a new game in which you can play. And in choreography, I'm a naturally inherently musical person. So music will always offer a sort of template onto which I will dance on. But The idea of creating a game, of creating an exercise for yourself to then integrate your choreographic mind, I encourage, and I think it will reveal a part of your creative thinking that you wouldn't do otherwise, because it's breaking a habit of always dancing to music, always dancing to music, which is absolutely fun. We love a a dancing body that transcribes the music, and in a way, you see a dancing body and you see the music. That's absolutely wonderful. I, I get a great inspiration from that. But when you're trying to expand your vocabulary as a creative thinker or expand your range of artistic thinking to give yourself a task. Look at a Van Gogh painting and how can I create a movement that transcribes that? Or how can I respond to that? To read a short story and interpret that, adapt that into three scenes of a choreographic structure without music or with music. And you're applying a, a music as an undercurrent. So now you have text, a piece of literature, the embodied movements of that expression, and music. So I think creating games for yourself are a wonderful opportunity for you to keep your curiosity alive and to keep the track of your growing as a person and as an artist active. So if you play the same games over and over, yes, you can get very well-skilled in that one game. But we're curious beings, and in our nature, we always are fascinated by a new game. And so instead of waiting for a game to be presented to you, you can create the game.
0: Yes, I think that's an important lesson. We're authors of our own lives, we're authors of our own games. Well, you've really given your example of your career and your life as a teacher. And so thank you so much, uh, Mario Alberto Zambrano, for inviting us into your imaginative world and sharing your insights into dance, literature, improvisation, and interdisciplinary arts. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process.
2: My pleasure.
1: The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Ian Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews producer on this podcast was Marley Hinchberger. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hegenbarth. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Adonis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.